Hello everybody and welcome back to the Line of Vienna Suite podcast episode 109. My name is Will Jones and joining me tonight is a very special guest, Paul Fletcher MBE. Hello Paul. Hi Will. Great to speak to you tonight, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on um, and hopefully get cracking on, on, on some some memorable stories that you've got for us. Um, so yeah, uh, some interesting times at uh, Bolton, for sure. Yeah, definitely. You're obviously Bolton born and bred yourself, um, so yeah. I'm sure you've obviously got some fond memories to, to recall. Um, we'll start back in, I think it's 1967, I think I'm right in saying. Way before my time, but it, it's the beginning of something special for you. Uh, I think that's the year that you joined Bolton. Um, just tell us what you can recall from those early years, really. Yeah, I, um, I went to Smithle School. Um, yeah. did, uh, did pretty well, played for the first team at, at football, uh, got scouted for Lancaster schoolboys, played for Lancaster schoolboys, uh, got into a trial for England schoolboys. So I was doing pretty well as a, as a, as a player. I was an outside right, believe it or not. Um, um, well, I find it hard to believe now, um, in, in that position. Uh, then I got an offer from Bolton Wanderers to be an apprentice professional, uh, which I was with about uh, 10 or 12 other guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's how my career at uh, the old Burning Park started. Oh, yeah, it would be Burning Days back then, wasn't it? it just it, it, Obviously, it was, it was before my time, but it just sounds like that, that was the place to be at the time. And, you know, you get 40,000 through the gate nearly every week and it, it must have been some atmosphere to, to play with. Well, it was indeed because I'd, I'd been taken to uh, to Burning Park with my with my granddad and my dad, and I was familiar with the big crowds that they used to get there. Uh, the manager at the time was Bill Ridding. Mm. Uh, I think he probably lasted about nearly twenty years as manager as they oh. used to do in those days. Uh, <laughs> he was he was my manager, but my my stroke of good luck uh, was one day when I was. Uh, I was always keen on. on I'd seen a, I'd seen a young lad called Dave Lewis had had a ball. He was he was only fifteen. He, he was only about five foot five, and he sprung up in the air. He seemed to hang her, hang there for about two minutes, and then he would head the ball. And I thought that is absolutely fantastic. And for no other reason, I just wanted to copy him. At the time, I was playing a lot of uh, basketball at Smills School, and um, in. in after we'd finished the basketball practice, I used to always practice my heading. Mm. And for some unknown reason, I was doing some heading one day uh, after training at Bolton. And Nat Lofthouse, who yeah. was the assistant there, not the manager at the time, right. he saw me and he and he, he took me under his wing and helped me mm. on on timing and and gave me a lot of uh, instruction about heading the ball. And he, and when he became manager, he was the one who turned me from an outside right. To a centre forward, and that was oh, yeah. my past. <laughs> the next yeah. sixteen years, because I played, I played strike. I was only five foot nine, like Nat Lofthouse was. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, six foot four centre centre forward. So um, I played uh, a number of years for Bolton and uh, mm-hmm. ten years for Burnley. Well, yeah. So obviously, it, it was the sort of first part of your career that you were at Bolton, wasn't it? Really. So, um, you know, to hear that Nat took you under his wing like that as a sort of similar player to, to himself and sort of like yeah, like liking yourself to him and so on. I think he saw a bit of himself in me. I was yeah. never as good a player as, as he was uh, because he had umpteen England caps and uh, and the rest. It was it was a, di- a different game with a different ball uh, mm. as even as we have in today's football. It's a, a totally different ball that, that, that they play with now. Um, but uh, certainly, it was a pleasure, and a bit, I always thought it a great privilege to play for your hometown club um, after after being in school there. So, although I had one massive setback mm. in my uh, in my first two years there, do you want me to tell you about that? Go for it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I was doing well. I was scoring goals. I was in the mm. first team. I was eighteen years old. Everything was great. Just bought myself yeah. a brand new. Car a mini, <laughs> uh, um, and I was being transferred to Everton um, oh, wow. for a record fee uh, to huh. under um, to un, un, understudy. Uh, it was just amazing to be transferred across there, and everything was going uh, pretty smoothly. And then suddenly the transfer was off. It was right. the day before the transfer deadline, and they said uh, I'd failed the medical. There was something wrong with my heart. 
so that was a massive setback to me. Um, in the end, there was nothing wrong with my heart. I, I, I had and I still have heart murmur that many people have. Um, and after about six months of trials and tests and hospital and all sorts of problems, um, I was told I had the all clear, but it didn't help my football career because I'd slipped down into the junior teams again and I struggled to get, to get, back, um, to get back playing. No, of course, it, it sounds like <laughs> quite the setback, but obviously we're very grateful that, that it wasn't the case um, and you're all well and fit and, and everything. Um, obviously, you, you thought that was going to be you know, a record transfer and everything, and then three years later, it did happen, didn't it? You, you were then signed at Burnley for, I think it was one of the most expensive transfers uh, at, at that time. Um, of course, you'll yeah, be one of our own, but yeah, <laughs> go and talk to us about that. You know, Nat, Nat was the manager and he brought me in and he said, look, he said, uh, there's no doubt that you're going to um, have this transfer. We, we, mm. It's a great club. He didn't He didn't even tell me which club it was. He just said, it's a great club. Um, you, you're going to do the transfer uh, because if you don't, the football club will go out of business. No. So that was almost... <laughs> uh, no, no, I, for me, it could have been either Bournemouth or Aberdeen or anywhere. Uh, but it, luckily, I found out later that it was uh, Burnley Football Club who'd come in for me. Right, well, it, it, it's quite ironic now how you said that we'd be going bust with, without that sale. So, um, yeah, but it, it seemed like it, it was the right move for you anyway. And you obviously did exceptional well and you, you've still got you know several ties to Burnley and that, that they're your, your, your main allegiance, aren't they, really? Yeah, it was a Very great good. move for me. I, I went straight into the first team and mm-hmm. I managed to keep my place there for you know the best part of 10 years. Uh, we had lots of good players coming and going. Uh, we did have some good success in, in what now is the Premiership. Uh, we got, we got uh, first year I was there, I, I, joined, I joined them in April and um, right. we were relegated that season, but we got promoted the next year. And uh, we we stayed there for four or five years, and so I had um, great benefits of playing against Joy, the George Best of this world and the Johnny Giles and and the Ron Harrises at Chelsea. So it was it was it was fantastic. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, and obviously, at that point, you were then sort of brought up to then uh, make a handful of appearances at international level as well. Uh, I think it was the under twenty three section, wasn't it? But you were selected by. Dom Revy himself, um, to then be brought up to the senior squad as well. Uh, I believe it was then an, a, a career-ending injury that actually prevented that. Um, but, you know, can you remember sort of what, what your international experience was like, ever so briefly, and, you know, how it came about with your call-up? Yeah, initially it was under-23s, under as it was now. It's under-21s, I think it is now. Yeah. It was under-23s. I played, uh, I think I got five caps, um... On one occasion, I only lasted 15 minutes. I was playing in Lyon in France, and the guy uh, threw a punch at me, and referee <laughs> didn't see it, and he put my nose underneath my eye. <laughs> so that was a, a bit of a shock. So I didn't see much of that game. Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed. Then I did get a call up for the full England squad. Um, uh, Bob Latchford, who was the Everton players, who I was going to understudy to at uh, Everton, um, he went down injured, and I got a call up. Uh, for the full England squad oh, wow. via Don Revy, but unfortunately I was away on tour with the Burnley Football Club in the Caribbean and there was right. no way I could get back on in time. No. Uh, um, probably not that I would have wanted to, but uh, um, I just couldn't get back in time and that was the, that was the nearest I ever got to, to full international football. Um, and then af- <laughs> after that, uh, I, got in, I got a few niddly injuries, mm. uh, which ruled my out. Rule me out of being uh, called up for England again, and then I got a serious injury. So and that was that. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, these these things are interesting to look back on. Yeah, it shows quite a loyalty to to club football. I mean, I know you said there was absolutely no way you could have got back logistically, but I'm sure it does show some element of loyalty to you know to staying with the Burnley squad. Um, rather than you know going off and joining up with the England team, you've had the chance of a full international cap. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, <laughs> sitting on the beach with Burnley, I would definitely have got have got back. But uh, uh, but in 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 those days, uh, travel wasn't quite as easy as no. it is now. And even telephony, um, you know, you had to book a telephone call, and and somebody <laughs> would give you a. A nod four hours, five hours later to say you, you call, you can take your call now. And it was just, 
ludicrous. So uh, yeah, sure it was a, it was a it different though. era. It was a different era, and mm. I did, and I and I couldn't have got back if I'd have wanted to. But yeah. it's a shame. Yeah, it went. Like you know, it was unavoidable that you then couldn't couldn't join up with him again, um, and retired early at the age of thirty-two. I think I'm right in saying. Um, obviously, yeah. The, well, yeah, it's an interesting one, this will, because you say re- mm. retired early. Um, I played from being sixteen. Um, yeah, of course, it's not be, that early, is uh, it? Uh, yeah. 30, 32, you know, the, the average career, even today, is about seven years, two months. So, oh. I, you know, I did uh, 14, 15 years. So I, I, I had, a, I had a, a, you know, of all the Ryan gigs who plays till the 90, 39 years old, there's hundreds of young lads who only make it for 12 months. So, um, you know, I, I had a really good career with some really good clubs. And yeah. uh, I just look back on it as a just fantastic time. No, of course. It, it, it's obviously a lengthy career, you know, starting out at 16 or whatever and then getting your England call up very early on and, and, and going through the, the ranks with Bolton and then getting on to Burnley and, and so on. Yeah, it, it's still quite the career and, and to to wait to retire at 32 is it, it, no, it, no like easier to me. But um, it still sounds like you had a fantastic career, but... Yeah, obviously it didn't stop you uh, pushing on in the football industry at all, though, did it? Because you then went into uh, into the management element and the directorial uh, roles, and I, I think I believe you started out and um, down the road from from ourselves actually at, at Cone Dynamos. Was was that right? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I wanted to stay in football, mm. but I didn't want to be a manager or a coach or a trainer or anything on the bouncy ball side of it. I could see football turning into big business mm. uh, which it slowly has done over the last 20 30 years um so i was very keen to get in at the, the bottom of the ladder really and uh, mm. so i thought it would be a good idea to start at a non-league football club and it was the best decision you know at ucfb where we have our football university i tell many of our students don't think that if you get your first job at chelsea or at manchester united <laughs> Um, it's important. You've got to learn the ropes first, and the best place to learn the ropes is non-league football. Um, so at Cone Dynamos, I was in charge of selling the perimeter advertising, organising the sportsman's dinner, paying the referee, uh, getting a sponsored car for one of the players, uh, doing a match report for for the man. I was doing everything, uh, but it's, it was fantastic experience. I'm sure. And then when I got into league football, I, I had all this experience behind me because I and you know the only difference at non-league and league football is there's a lot more notes on the end of the check. Uh, sure. Obviously, when you sell a premature advertising board for fifty quid at uh, non-league football, it's five hundred pounds at um, uh, a league club, and you know that's the only difference. So you know any young people who are listening, don't think you've got your dream job if you walk straight into a to a top Premiership club. You better learning the ropes first and then progressing into that later that's what I did wise words obviously you then went on to uh, Huddersfield um, where you obviously designed the the McAlpine which is now the John Smiths you were chief exec there as well I believe at the time um, but more importantly obviously you, you, <laughs> to most of our generation you, you're well known to be the designer of the the infamous Reebok um, uh, amongst several others obviously we'll, we'll, which we'll come to shortly um, yes it'll always be known as the Reebok by the way <laughs> but yeah t- I mean tell us about that if you can Paul um, you know what what sort of an experience was that and, or perhaps even an ordeal you know to, to get the Reebok to, to what it is now yeah, well, you know, I'll flip over it quickly. At Huddersfield, it was a good opportunity. And I went went over there and met the directors and I said, look, I believe you're talking about a new stadium here. I want nothing whatsoever to do with it. I'm very keen on the commercial side of football. I want to look after the perimeter advertising. I'll do the match sponsorship. I'll host the dinners. I'll do all these things. That's what I'm good at. But get somebody else to do the uh, this new stadium. Um, and that was genuinely how I saw it. Uh, and then after about... 12 months, 18 months, uh, the chairman left and a new chairman came on board called Graham Leslie and he walked into my office one day and he said, here's my orders to you, uh, Mr. Fletcher. Uh, I'm going to promote you to chief executive and your first job is to be in charge of our new stadium. Uh, I said, I know nothing whatsoever about stadia. He said, well, you better start learning. 
So that's how that's how I got into uh, into stadium. Now, when somebody wants when somebody wants you like that, you are able to um, uh, to ask for some. I said, well, I'll do it on a few conditions. I want this, I want that, I want the other. But the number one, I said, the secretary, a guy called George Bins, who was a really grumpy old devil, was George, <laughs> but he was the the straight. Typical Yorkshire, very dour. Well, I say very. I don't mean that to Yorkshire people. Um, but he, but he, he was a bit of a mourner and a groaner. But he was mm. as straight as days long, and he was a fantastic guy to have as a right hand, uh, right hand for me mm. when we went into this stadium project. So we did indeed. We built. It took six and a half years. We started to learn to put it together. Uh, we started off with four million. We ended up raising thirty-two and a half million. Um, it was a we got the Building of the Year award, um, and it was a good feather in my cap. And at the end of it, just before it opened, uh, we had some great rock concerts there. We had the Eagles there and Bon Jovi and Beautiful South and uh, Brian Adams. We had some fantastic events there, and just. Uh, um, uh, during that period, the guys from Bolton who were wanting to build a new stadium came to see me oh. and say, "Can you help us with this?" So I, you know, I helped all yeah. that I could. And uh, two months later, they said, um, "We want to offer you a job. Will you be chief exec of our new stadium?" So that's how I started. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's quite the way to go about it. Uh, obviously, the, the Reebok sort of loosely based on that. I think you know I've been to, to Huddersfield a couple of times, and you can see the similarities between the two. And they'd obviously, you know, based it on that and seen your good work there and, and decided that you were the best man for the job. Can you remember who it was that approached you for that? Yes, it was Gordon Argrees, the chairman, and Graham mm. Ball, who was the commercial director. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, even though the, the you know, let, let's call it the Reebok for want of yeah. wanting to call it <laughs> the, 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 the Reebok, has a problem. And... Right. I don't know how you can overcome this problem because I saw it on the very first day that I went to visit. Uh, I went to – it was already being built when I when I got there. Um, yeah. They'd already laid the pitch um, and they were starting the construction. So I went to see the, cons- the site manager mm. and I thought, this is a long way out of town. Um, yeah. And – you know, we have learned over the years of doing these stadiums that if you if you stay close to your, your home and your, your city centre, your town centre, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot easier to retain the crowd. Um, and I was just looking at some numbers, you know, before you came on, Will. Um, mm-hmm. in, in 1996, when we left Burnley Park, the average gate uh, was 15,800. Right, and now last season the average gate is fifteen thousand eight hundred. You know, <laughs> so we've done this massive leap, and many years has passed, and we've had the Sam Allardyces, and the club has lost on one occasion hundred eighty million, and all blah 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 blah, yeah. and we're still getting the same crowd as what we did at Burning Park. That wasn't the plan. No, that wasn't. The plan. But they were pioneers in those early days, and you know, so was I, um, and we didn't know um, that. You've got to be very careful where you locate these new stadiums. It's not just the fact that you can have a beautiful building. It's about how your spectators can get there in an easy fashion. Yeah, I bet. I mean, obviously, you said that construction was underway sort of as you got there, and I bet there was not much you could do about it. And, you know, as, as much as you may have gone against it, and I think we probably would have done as supporters as well, but obviously that there's no say in the matter, and it's just a case of wherever they feel appropriate or wherever they have planning permission or, or, or whatever else it involves. Um, I, I mean, obviously, it hasn't affected it too much in the long run other than, you know, we haven't brought the crowds in, but that may be down to what happens on the pitch. But, um, you know, it, it, I don't think it was necessarily a, a failure of a, you know, of an operation, was it at all? It, it actually turned out very well and, you know, it's obviously known uh, nationwide, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah, the, the the only the only problem with 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 the stadium mm. is is that it's a ghost town when there's not a football match there. That yeah, is the problem. You know, we we have we have learned that I'm doing a um, a great project for, for Mastercard, and um, the, the stadium's the future. Won't look anything like the Reebok. Uh, just as a, as an instance, uh, the pitch has got to stop being on ground level. You know, <laughs> we're going to start putting the pitch up on level three. Yeah. Now that gives you the opportunity of having two levels of car parking underneath the pitch, 
and shops and offices wrapped all the way around and football begins up up on level three. Um, so so that, that's how the stadiums of the future are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And if we could have developed that, if we'd have had this knowledge and developed that um in, in, in the early days when we put the the Reebok together, um, I'm sure we, we would have gone down those lines and kept it. You see, the, the great thing about Burning Park, even though it was a tatty old stadium, probably 60 or 70% of everybody who went to watch a game walked to the game. Mm-hmm. That is in great contrast to when you go six or seven miles out of town and nearly everybody has to either arrive by public transport or by uh, on, in, in a car. And the arrival at the game is just not quite the same. And that's mm-hmm. why the club, who, you know, like Leicester City have just moved a, a few inches away and, and uh, this new Tottenham uh, stadium that's, that's uh, stone from the old... Even the Huddersfield one was only um, about 150 yards away from the old stadium and it's a lot easier to retain your crowd. I'm just advising Aberdeen now. They're, tr- they're trying to relocate to a, a site that's seven miles out of town and I'm, I'm warning them to be, to be very careful because when, when we did it... Um, as I say, we. I wasn't part of it. It was already. It had already been started. Construction had started when, when I joined the project. Um, so when I when I was involved in that project many years ago, nobody really knew this. But we have information now. Yeah. We can look at the uh, it, the, yeah. the tendencies, and we can say, look, be very careful. You don't uh, you don't do that. And one of the other things I found is that. They were great guys, who were uh, Gordon Argreaves and, and, and Graham Ball, but in some ways there was a lot of things they didn't know about football. You know, they had this philosophy that if you, if you have the best pitch in the land, uh, you win the league. And I'd say it's not quite like that because if you have the best pitch, the opposition still plays on the best pitch. So it doesn't, doesn't help you. So, you know, the idea of when I first got there, they said, we've, we've laid the pitch. And uh, we've put a fence around it so nobody can walk on it, and it's going to be the best pitch in England. My first thought was, well, wait a minute, that's, that, that will not help win a game. Uh, and it's going to cost an awful lot of money because normally you construct a pitch from the inside on the pitch, all the, all the uh, vehicles come in, they bring all the steppings, they, all the lifting me- mechanism. It just, you build a stadium in from the inside out, and this particular stadium, we had to build it from the outside in. So it was complicated and it was yeah. a long way out of town. It's fascinating what sort of the thought process that goes into it, and and how they decide, you know, what what how the best way is to go about it, and 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 the the methods of it, and and the tactics almost behind it. Um, but obviously, you you fear for it, and I guess to an extent, it does alienate the fans when you know you're not considering how many you're bringing in a week, and you you you're focusing too much on on the pitch rather than the the arena itself and it and its location. Um, but it, well, I, I don't think I don't think they concentrated enough on, you know, what can you do with the building when there's no football there? Mm. And, you know, we've learned an awful, an awful lot of lessons now. And, you know, f- football fans are wonderful people, but the unfortunate thing with football fans, if you line up six football fans, you have six different opinions. Cool. It's very rarely you can get a group <laughs> Do all agree on every every foot? It's like on this Brexit. Everyone has an yep. opinion on Brexit, and it's hard to get a a group of people who, who will agree. So you know, the the, the director of Bolton Wanderers uh, proceeded with the new stadium with not a lot of knowledge of putting new stadiums together before. You know, um, I've done five or six of these projects. I'm working on one in one in America, one in India, uh, one in Greece. I'm working on them around the world. So I understand these buildings now, and I can see the, the naivety of, you know, with respect to the chairman of Bolton and, and to mm-hmm. the director of Bolton. It was the first time they'd ever done one, so it was only right that they, they would get some things wrong. Of course, and we we see obviously the issues that the the new Spurs stadium encountered, and all the delays that it's had, and you know what goes into it, and and how much consideration there is, and as to how you go about it, you know, when it's your first move or your second move, or whatever, and you start to learn from your mistakes, I guess, don't you? But it was the first time that that Bolton had had to to do that, so obviously it was gonna gonna cause issues, and and it did in the in the process, but seems to have uh, have saved things to an extent, but uh, obviously down to your good work. <laughs> 
But yeah, it, it seems like you. I think that the project lasted about two years. Was it something like that? Um, to, to get yeah, it all done I, at Bolton. A couple of years there, yeah, yeah. Mm. And then just about eighteen months later, something like that in '99, uh, you drafted him by the FA to work on the the new Wembley as we know it. Um, there's about five hundred million pound project, um, but then obviously you soon came to your senses and, and decided the north was better and, and came home. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, not really because you know I never played at Wembley, um, no. so when um, when I got the call from Dave Richards, now Dave Richards was the chairman of Sheffield Wednesday at the time. He was uh, the chairman of FA, and mm. uh, you know I'd been doing after dinner speaking for the last. Well, at that time, for about 20 years. Uh, so I'd, I'd sat next to Dave on a number of occasions and, and I got to know him very well. And, you know, this networking thing in football is very, very important. And my networking was done when I was on, on tables at sportsmen's dinners all around the country. So I was sat next to Dave Richards and when he becomes chairman of the FA, he rang me one day and he said, uh, how would you like to come and help us build a new stadium? You know, how, how could I refuse that? No, I've never been on, on moving away from home and didn't want to uh, move my family down there. No. Uh, so, you know, my family stayed put up here. And I, I knew if I could stick it two or three years, it would be great experience, which it was. And you're right, it started off as a £500 million project, ended up as about £780 million project. So <laughs> there, was a lot of prob- there was a lot of problems. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't easy doing business in London. Um no. Uh, so you know, I was I was on uh, two and a half years, and I was back home. Yeah, but it was quite the responsibility to take on, especially you know when the expenses have gone so far over it and what have you. But um, obviously, you, you don't look back on it too uh, too negatively, and you're obviously proud of what it is now and everything. It, it's. <laughs> Not all, not at all. I, I, I look back with pride, really, because I, I did have some input into into. You know, I I was a member of the team with Ken, Ken Bates was the chairman. There was five directors, and we made a very very serious decision one day, and it it cost uh, a few people their reputations. We said, under no circumstances are we putting an athletic strike around the new Wembley Stadium. Mm. The early designs, it had an athletic strike like the West Ham Stadium. Uh, and the trouble with an athletic strike is the football fans have to sit too far away from the action and yeah. they don't enjoy it quite as much. So we put dug our heels in, even though we'd been awarded many millions by the UK Athletics. Um, we decided, and and I think that was a massive decision for English football, because imagine what it would be like now uh, for the England fans uh, to, to turn up at an England game and be sat 30 metres away from the action. Uh, you know, as a fan we were all football fans on the board of, of the FA and and, and and as football fans we said we want to be near to we want to be as near put the fans as near as possible uh, to that touchline and and that's what we did and I'm pretty proud about that decision we too yeah it was a great one because I think obviously we, we've experienced what's happened at West Ham you know with all the complaints that they received at first moving into the London Stadium um, obviously that was a new build to an extent and it, it was well, built for different purposes, wasn't it originally? But we've seen, you know, how, how much that can impact, you know, the the, the fans' um, opinions of that, and, and and how many you get through the gate. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a great decision to to not have, you know, a track in between or any, or anything, you know, to to distance the fans because, you know, it's a point that I that I made earlier on about not trying not to alienate the fans with such projects, and you know, I think oh. it's important to, to consider them in all this. So you you done very well there. <laughs> but, well, I was quite. Because, you know, the hat that I wore whenever I sat in these board meetings or these boardrooms, more more than anything, I was a football fan. I was a Bolton yeah. Wanderers fan where my granddad used to take me when I was a kid. And that's what I used to think. What will be the best for the fans? Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously because of Bradford City fire and the tragedy we had there and the, the Hillsborough tragedy, um, we'd learned an awful lot about how we can have a safer stadium. But when you look at the West Ham stupidity of that, yeah. just for the sake of an athletics, so just for the sake of having athletics every five years that last three weeks, West Ham fans every single year have got to sit 40 or 50 or sometimes 60 metres away from the action. We want to sit closer just so... A few hundred people can watch an athletics event yeah. every blue moon. 
know, ludicrous. It, it is. You've got to build these stadiums for football fans. You know, I remember going to the old bowling ground, uh, as it was called, at West Ham Upton Park. You might know it as Upton Park. Yeah. Um, and you were so near to... You know, you you literally you ran off the the edge of the pitch to pick up the ball for a throw in, and as you picked up the ball, you'd be grabbed by West Ham fans, and they were really and they'd spit at you and they'd thump you in the back and they'd give you a <laughs> dig. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was great. It was a proper ground thing, wasn't it? Yeah. It was part of the day. And and it was just their banter, and they'd mm. say funny things, and they'd give you a lot of abuse. But you, you were reacting with with the spectators, and yeah. now you, you know use the same thing again. Ball goes ball goes out, and, and there's a guy has to walk twenty meters away. Yeah. There's no fans because so, it can launch it away to waste yeah. time. <laughs> so, so if I've had if I've had a meant something in my head all the way through. As, as I've never built these stadiums to make a commercial profit. I've always thought, how what will be best for football fans? What will be best? And, you know, there's lots of things that football fans don't realise. You know, you can only have 20, 28 seats and the width of the vomitories and the, the widths of the stairs and all these mm. things, just to make it safe yeah. for football spectators. Uh, and it would be a great responsibility, but I, I've always taken that view. That's the most important yeah, I mean, it is definitely to to include the fans in all this, and it's proven to to you know to that for that to be the case. Uh, obviously, you've used your expertise in that area to then you know go on from from the build at Wembley and whatever to uh, to to co-found, direct, coordinate, however the many titles you want to use um, at UCFB with uh, with with Brendan Flood, and that's obviously now based at Wembley itself, uh, along with the Etihad having having been originally at Turf Moor. Um, I presume that's something you, you're massively proud of too, to, to have been a part of, or to be Indeed, a part of. Indeed, uh, before I mention you, what, what I would like to mention, Will, which, mm. you know, I, I think is quite interesting, um, there's quite, quite a range of spectators come and watch these games, mm. and uh, I was challenged when I was at Huddersfield uh, by the disabled supporters there, uh, one of the disabled guys, he said, look, why don't you come to a game in a wheelchair and see what it's like? Yeah. And I well, I will do this. And I went to a game at the old Leeds Road Stadium yeah. and it was a complete nightmare. It was awful. I just yeah. couldn't get a couldn't get to the toilet, couldn't get a hamburger, couldn't get in, couldn't get out, bumping into people, people were spilling beer over me. And it was an eye-opener. So mm. what I've been you know, proud of in the stadiums that I've done, uh, we've always put in fantastic facilities for especially wheelchair disabled who find it very, very difficult often to get to, to games. So we tried to make it as, as easy as possible as we could. So that was one lesson that I learned. So on to, on to UCFB, yeah, I was a, um, I left I left Coventry because I had a bit of a Barney uh, with, mm-hmm. with the uh, chairman there, Jeffrey Robinson. That, that's a sad state of affairs there, isn't it? <laughs> well, it was a shame at Coventry because the council um, were in battle with the football club from day one. And whenever you went to battle with the council, they generally win. And they've yeah. had a strange type of victory because uh, instead of the word Coventry, being beamed all around the world in the English Premiership alongside Manchester and Liverpool and Chelsea and Newcastle. The word mm. Coventry gets beamed around a few um, people in this in this country with the, alongside Rochdale and Peterborough and <laughs> Scunthorpe. And, and, you know, that serves them right yeah. because they need to help the football club, which they didn't do. And the council have been very, very unhelpful uh, mm. to the football club right from day one. And it is continuing to this day. Uh, so, you know, one day Coventry will bounce back and it's a great stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a lot of pleasure putting that project together. Mm. Um, but I was just sad the way that uh, the council took ownership. You know, they took ownership of the football club's ground and sold it to a rugby club. Yeah, of course. That's so, so let's get back. Let's get back to UCFB. Yeah. So I've, I've left Coventry. I'm on my way back. I get a call from Brendan Flood, who'd come to see Coventry. I'd shown him round the, the Coventry project, and he said, "How do you fancy coming for working with us at um, at Burnley to put a new stand uh, together?" Uh, so I thought mm. that 
you know, it's like uh, (laughs) move home and blah, blah, blah. So that's what it happened. Then after a couple of years, he came in with this idea about a football university. And that Mm. sounded really, really interesting because I'd always uh, had this problem. How can you use a football stadium on non-match days? Uh, So to have students in there studying was just a great idea. So uh, I, I bought a few shares in the company and uh, worked for five or six years getting it started. And we, we're now at Wembley and we're at the Etihad. Yeah, it's been an excellent project. And it, obviously, it was one that I, I seriously considered going to, you know, beforehand. And, you know, it's a great setup that you've got there. Obviously, what it was to begin with at Turf Moor and then obviously now at the Etihad and, and Wembley. And, you know, your ideas, you know, to sort of think outside the box as well of what's happening when it's not match day you know even even just the the opportunities that that presents to students you know when there's concerts on or or rugby you know matches or anything like that you know it, it's great to have have these opportunities so yeah it, it was it's a groundbreaking project i think really that, that you've done there so um, yeah, you know, I say, I say to our students now, if you want to be a chief exec or a finance director, it's okay taking your exams and and, and, and passing your exams, but you need some experience. So if you're in a football club, when there's a match day, they're always looking for some help. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, why not go and work on catering? Why not go and work on car park management? Why not go and work in in, in the ticket office and understand how the how the whole of the bill of the building comes together? Because if you want to be chief exec you're going to have to know all these different aspects of, of, of the football industry so we do degrees based on the business of football nothing to do with the bouncy ball side of it and uh, it's been you know really ex- uh, successful and we're expanding yeah. around the world now um, yeah. we're having in, in Singapore and in, in Sydney in Australia and and in, in America or all around the world uh, because Genuinely, everybody wants to know two things. Number one, how do our stadiums work? Because we've got twenty, sorry, thirty-one brand new stadiums over here, mm-hmm. um, and we haven't had a problem with stadiums since we since we built the first one. Um, and they, they also want to know how the English Premiership works. It's the yeah. biggest sports business on the planet. It makes more money than any other sports business on earth, um, and, and here it is. And, and for our, our students, it's on their doorstep if they want to learn about it. You know, these other countries have to England and find out about it. For our students, um, it's on the doorstep. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, you obviously you might see it as a backward step now, having moved to the SEI and Wembley. But, you know, if you ever fancy bringing it to Bolton, you know where we are. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, uh, well, Bolton's had um, uh, edu- education there. Did, yeah. Good with uh, Phil died a short time ago and, and he, he introduced education into a, into a football stadium which is it's a good idea really you know, I, mm. I've talk, always talked about a hamburger stadium where if you can just picture a hamburger which has two buns and in the middle you've got the meat and the way we would see it the bottom heart the bottom bun uh, would be uh, car parking it will be car parking and retail. So you'd have two levels of retail wrapped all around the stadium. So that means you've got a travel agency, you've got a Starbucks cafe, you've got a Greg's Bakery, you've got all these shops wrapped all the way around. Above those, you've got offices. Then you've got uh, car parking. Then the meat in the middle is obviously the game. Um, so you've got football, rugby, rock concerts, um, various events that you could play on the field. And then in the top of the bun, which this is where it gets quite interesting, uh, we foresee it being a university um, that uh, one half of it would be uh, teaching um, and the other half would be student accommodation. So this would be great for a student. We'd have 300 student bedrooms in there and students could uh, actually live in the sports building. Uh, they could spend the money um, in, the, in the Starbucks and, and the cafes at the bottom, and then they could work on match days when there's a rock concert on or if there's a football or a rugby match. Um, so it just, instead of a building that opens once a fortnight and then closes waiting for the next event, um, that we, we would see a hamburger stadium that stays open seven days a week. Yeah, it, 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 it's a great opportunity to, to have something like that, you know, that's going all the time in the background, whether or not it's match day or, or anything like that, whether you've got an event on that there's always, you know, the door open for, for students there to, to have a direct in and, and, you know, be within that environment. It, it's just a priceless opportunity, isn't it, really? So, 
Um, well, it is. But the important thing is you've got to design it in. Whilst you're doing your felt tip drawings of what the stadium looks like, you can't build a football st- with respect. You can't build a stadium like the, the Reebok and then say, mm-hmm. let's add a university and let's add underground car park. And it's just yeah. too so you've got to get it in at the very, very first drawings of, of the plans and force these architects who want to win awards for pretty buildings. Architects are some of my biggest enemies. Um, they, they, they want to have, you know, as a football fan, I don't give a monkey what the stadium looks like. I want to know what it feels like inside. I want to know what the atmosphere is like. I want to know what the sound is like. And, you know, even though we have the, these pretty roofs, which is the curvature on the front of the roof, it doesn't really help the team uh, because the sound isn't quite the same as a flat roof. Mm, quite uh, open, isn't it? It's, it's known for being cold up there as well. <laughs> well, and, and indeed, you know, I remember the first game against Everton. I remember sitting there. It was a packed house and thinking, you know, where's the noise coming from? Yeah. And, and even at Huddersfield with the curvature of the roof. Uh, so when, when I got to Coventry, I made sure it didn't happen and we put a flat roof on and you know what it was like the old burned in park <laughs> and and even though it was it was modelled on that mm. the sound bounced around the flat roof a lot easier than it did bounced around the, the curb roof so yeah. far better atmosphere for the team I was going to say would you say the Coventry State or the, the Rico Arena rather um, <laughs> as I should call it it is Possibly, you know, one of your best projects. From a design point of view, yes, mm. we got it right. We <clears throat> we pointed it north. We've learned now that you've got to, if if you lay a football pitch, you've got to point it north because then you get maximum sunlight on the pitch through even through the the wind the winter months. Uh, and sunlight on the pitch is important because you want a grass pitch. Uh, I'm not in favour of these aesthetic. Uh, Deso, uh, sorry, plastic pitches don't work. Deso pitches do work, and then in your southern roof, you put these things called um, uh, uh, oh god, I can't remember the name of the panels uh, that allows the sunlight through the roof. Uh, translucent panels that allow sunlight through the roof, um, and then you get a perfect pitch, which is mm. important. And then you get your fans as near as possible uh, to the pitch. Uh, we went for 32,000 at, uh, at that stadium at Coventry. Um, we got many things right. Uh, there was a casino there. There was an exhibition hall there. There was a, um, all the bedrooms, all, all the executive boxes converted to hotel bedrooms. It was a fantastic building. And all the revenue streams were there for one reason, to keep the football club in the premiership to make as much money as you can, to fund the manager so he can buy the best team possible. But unfortunately, the council got very heavily involved and they didn't see it like that. Of course, yeah. It, it's obviously one that's just divided opinion, particularly hasn't it, at Coventry, and it's still a, a, a sort of ongoing project at the minute. And I think they're still facing a battle with with the council or, or another organisation similar um, about you know where they're going to be at the end of this year. I think their lease yeah. runs out, so... Um, yeah, obviously yeah. they're in a situation not too dissimilar from ourselves there at least but yeah it, it, it's well a... no not, not really similar to they're not having success on the field which is similar yeah. to Bolton <laughs> uh, but you know I found both the Bolton council the councillors at Bolton were very helpful and they wanted Bolton Wanderers to be a big success and they would help to get there because they knew it was good for the uh, and probably you know this this goes back you know maybe a hundred years because when the team was doing well all the mills would were, were doing well and all the mill owners were making money mm-hmm. um, just because the community felt that its local team was doing well um, I didn't feel I didn't feel that in Coventry I just thought yeah the council saw the football club as a as a big risk and yeah yeah and they didn't help them as much as they should. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the, to an extent, they're in a in a different situation. I, when I said they were, they were similar, I just meant in a, in terms of you know where where we're going to be potentially going into court and you know potentially losing assets and <laughs> and what have you if we yeah. go into into liquidation. But it's yeah. just I have to see what happens because you know moving into into the current day with all the struggles you know football teams are experiencing, it, it's one of those where off the field matters are sometimes you know outweighing what's going on on the field and I'm sure you can you can vouch for that yourself having been in such a position yeah 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 so so well just so just one thing that I've learned if anybody asks me about new stadiums now if there's one thing I've learned about new stadiums two things that you shouldn't do 
Mm. Number one, you shouldn't put the pitch on the ground level. I've mentioned this earlier yep. to you. Put the pitch on level three, which gives you lots and lots of space underneath. Doesn't cost an awful lot of money. You could even get a test scores underneath a football <laughs> stadium, believe it or not. And you get a very profitable Tesco's underneath there. Uh, and number two, don't put the car parks next to the stadium. Put yeah. the car park half a mile away. Because if you're in one of the car parks, you can't get away for half an hour. No. You're far better walking to a remote car park that's either 20 minutes or half an hour away. And then you can jump in your car and drive away. Yeah. But because one of these big car parks, like up at the, uh, let's call it the Reebok again, at the Reebok, the these big car parks wrapped all around, all it means is that the motorway gets jammed and nobody can get off. <laughs> so what you're better doing, and this this is uh, mind-boggling, if not, um, you're better doing is building houses around. Yeah. Building houses, shops and communities and uh, high-rise flats and, and stores and all these things that you need and move the car parks away so yeah. people can walk to the cars through the shops and the offices and the houses, um, get in the cars and drive away. Yeah, there, there's endless opportunities there. I think you you know you make a very good point in the areas for, for profit there, you know, and, and it's all an incorporation of, of, of what the fans want as well. And, you know, as much as they might want the, the convenience of being able to walk 50 hours and then getting in the car, you know, it's it's a matter of, of commercial aspects as well, isn't it, where where they can profit from? Yeah. Well, you know, I go, I go to Burnley Park to the old game now, and the car parks that are right, right next to the stadium, nobody is allowed to leave the car parks until half an hour after the game because they have to get all the away supporters away and all the, car, yeah. all, the, all the coaches away. So you're far better parking half a mile away, walking to your car, getting in your car, Having a nice, easy drive home, jumping on the motorway. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, those are two things that are, you know, and then you put in the football ground in the middle of a community again, mm. rather than in, in, in the middle of a, 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 green, a greenfield site yeah. that if, uh, if you're not careful can turn into a ghost town. Yeah, definitely. I mean, having incorporated all of those things as well, and and you know, if you had the opportunity to to build the Reebok again, I think you you definitely put it somewhere in the town centre, wouldn't you? Rather than you know out in out in Horwich. <laughs> if I if I if I had my time over again, <clears throat> what I would have loved to have done was to build the Reebok on were on on the site of Burning Park. It would have yeah. fit perfectly. Uh, the pitch would have been up on level three. It still could have had the same retail park, all the same shops, but they would have all been underneath. And the, and the terrible thing for the football fans, they'd all have to walk up 20 steps. That's the only difference. They'd yeah. have to walk up 20 steps to the game. That would be the only difference that they would notice. Yeah. And it would be. A, it could have been a fantastic project. But no, it was nobody's fault. We didn't know that in, in those days, no. but uh, we know it now. Trial and error, wasn't it? So... Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, can't be blamed for that. And you said you were late to the party, so we won't blame you. <laughs> no, but, yeah. no, I, I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, moving sort of into the current day and the, and the modern aspects of, of Bolton and how we're doing, you know, now really. Uh, obviously, and the struggles we're experiencing we're back in court on Wednesday, uh, like I said earlier, potentially facing liquidation, loss of assets, and so on. Um, you know, with, with your former positions at the club and despite your allegiance to Burnley I'm sure it still sort of hurts to see the way things are going at Bolton doesn't it I'd love to see Bolton back in the premiership as, as Huddersfield managed to get the uh, <clears throat> we had we did have some success when Sam Allardyce was there and we were up in the in the premiership and, mm-hmm. and we did do well um, but it wasn't sustainable because there wasn't enough money coming in um, so I don't know what the answer to, to, to that is uh, in in, in, in the location out there in Middlebrook, um, whether it will just continue or whether will will things will, will change for the better. Uh, I don't understand the ownership. I remember no. Dean Old being there who I didn't didn't know. I, I don't think I don't many know. of us understand it. <laughs> I, don't know. I, don't know. I don't know the chairman and I don't know anything about the owner. What I, I used to admire very, very much uh, Phil Gartside and uh, uh, Brent Warburton and the Warburton family. Uh, the club was in safe hands when they were in in, in charge, uh, but I, I, I don't know what's happening there now. It's it's quite sad. It is. Uh, yeah, it's been fascinating to listen to your take on things and everything. Uh, last question for me: 
Is there a message you sort of have for the fans or, or, or the club in general? I mean, obviously you said you'd like to see us get back to the Premier League, but you know, is, is there anything you'd sort of like to say as a, as a former player and and you know the involvement that you had uh, with the club? Yeah, it, sadly, the, the frustration of the fans. What what they tend to do is not turn up because <laughs> they vote feet, and fans are known for this. Uh, the unfortunate thing about that is that in the end, it doesn't help matters. It would be far better if the fans can turn up by the thousands, and there are many, many thousands of Boat Wanderers fans who don't turn up to the game. Mm-hmm. If, 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 if these people could bite the tongue, turn up to the game, start getting behind the club... Um, then that's the only way that it's going to recover. There's there's no other way to recover. No. I don't think we'll have any uh, any any Chinese multi billionaires going to walk through the door and, no. and and buy the club. I don't think that will happen. Um, so so even though you can show how mad you are and angry you are with the club by not mm-hmm. attending games, uh, it backfires on you in the long run. And, oh. and you know, the history of Bolton, and it, it has it has a wonder, wonderful, one of the founding members of, of the Football League, you know, a great history of the club. And I, I was always very proud to be a, a Bolton player. Um, let's see um, if we can get the crowd a bit higher than it, than it, than it is and, and see if we can get the boardroom sorted out. Yeah, I think costs sort of do impact that sometimes, you know, ticket price and whatever. But I think, you know, it's definitely a great point to, you know, to in- encourage fans to come back and, you know, make that a movement as opposed to, to staying away because it, it doesn't help matters, does it? So, um, yeah. yeah, no, it's been fan- fascinating, Paul. So thank you very much for, for joining us okay, tonight. Well, and everything. My, my pleasure. It's been, well, it's been a pleasure, pleasure for me as well. So. Um, yeah, you can you can find this obviously on on iTunes and and on the website. You can find all our ramblings on on the Land Vienna Suite website. And if there's nothing else left to say, then it's it's time to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from myself and Paul. And thank you very much for listening. Set la vie.